The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, the book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. The account of the earliest Christians, starting with the apostles, being commissioned and empowered by the Holy Spirit to go make Jesus known from here to the ends of the earth. And it recounts these early stories of people all over the known world becoming Christians, responding to this message, the message that the apostles are preaching, that Jesus is king. That Jesus is king over all peoples, over all nations, and that all of us owe allegiance and love to Jesus. In fact, that's, that's the central claim of the New Testament, is that Jesus is king. That Jesus has come and he's brought his kingdom, and the kingdom is yet to come. That it's both here and not here yet completely. The picture that the New Testament gives us of Christians as this kind of counter-movement of loyalists who are loyal to the true king even as we're dispersed amongst the kingdoms of this world. Does anybody remember the animated Robin Hood from the 70s? That Robin That song's going to be in your head the rest of the afternoon, so just you're welcome for that. Do you remember you remember the animated Robin Hood? What's the name of the king who the true king of Nottingham of England? King Richard the Lionheart. Remember, King Richard the Lionheart has gone away. He's gone to take part in the Crusades. It tells you something about the kind of king that he is, right? That he's gone to take place in these kind of wars against Crusades. He's the good guy, right? We'll just take it for granted from Robin Hood. He's the good guy in this story. And then who's left in King John's place, or, or gosh, King Richard's place? Prince John. Prince John the measly, and he's cowardly, and he's greedy, and he's got all the rings, and he's got the snake who's his, his, his advisor. He's kind of pathetic and moody and petty and capricious. And there's this kind of counter-movement that's developed in Nottingham, these underground loyalists to the true king. They're loyal to the true king who is King Richard. Robin Hood is one such loyalist, and he's working to undo the schemes of the enemy, to sabotage the work and the reign of the enemy. That's us, Christian. We are a kingdom people who are about Jesus, and we work against the prince of the power of the air. This is how one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, describes it. He says this, enemy-occupied territory. That's what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Now Acts is the story of the earliest apostles sabotaging and undoing the work of the enemy by announcing that the rightful king has come. The rightful king has landed. And our passage today shows us, the, the work in Philippi and these dramatic stories shows us what happens when the campaign goes to Philippi. It shows us what happens when the kingdom of God confronts the kingdoms of this world, when the city of God comes face to face with the city of man. What happens when Jesus is king? Four things. Let's read Acts 16, starting verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. That literally reads, a python spirit. A python spirit, a spirit of divination. 
and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. All right, so we started a couple of weeks ago looking at Paul's second missionary journey. We'll have a map up here on the screen that helps kind of situate, situate us geographically. So I know it's kind of difficult to make out from the back, but the circle on the bottom is the city of Jerusalem. That's where the second missionary journey begins. Paul makes his way out of Jerusalem, up north to the city of Antioch, and then from Antioch he travels, never eats, west until he gets to Philippi, which is in modern-day Greece. And last week we saw the gospel kind of take its first roots in the city of Philippi. Jim taught for us last week. He showed us how the Spirit specifically wanted Paul to make his way to this region. In fact, Paul is called to this region from a vision with a man who is saying, come and tell us about Jesus. Here in Philippi, they meet a woman named Lydia who, it says, prevails upon them. She opens her home. She's hospitable to the gospel and to the apostles, and a church is planted in Philippi. And last week, one of our elders, Jim, showed us how the Lord directs our steps for his good purposes. Though our path is dark beyond our view, all my ways are known to you. The Lord Jesus guides and he directs us as he would have us to go. And for Paul and the others, he directs them to the city of Philippi. Church is planted in Lydia's home, and the gospel work can begin. Now today, in our passage, we're told that Paul and his company are going to a place of prayer, which is where they met Lydia in the passage last week. So maybe they're going to convene once again with Lydia and her compadres. Uh, On the way, we're told they're met by this slave girl who is demon-possessed and is exploited by her owners for profit. Again, it says in the text that she has a spirit of divination, and the Greek It's actually literally rendered a python spirit. I'm not familiar with python spirits, but my guess is python spirits are not the good guys, right? According to commentators, the python spirit is associated with the oracle at Delphi. These oracles would prophesy kind of in allegiance and on behalf of the god Apollo from Greek mythology. There were these divining spirits who would be consulted for all sorts of things including by military leaders who would consult these oracles before going to battle. So the idea here is that this girl is possessed by the spirit who's able to tell the future, and she is an absolute cash cow these men who are exploiting her. And it's interesting how in the book of Acts, how often we see hucksters and charlatans appear. It's amazing. Think of Simon the Magician. You think of uh, um, Alemos, I believe his name was, in, in Acts chapter 13. You see these magicians and seers who use these, we'll call them gifts, for gain. In Acts, and I mean, even in our day and age, there's this kind of sick marriage of demon possession and the greedy human heart. Satan and the human heart happily working alongside one another in this story. And everything about it is unsettling and horrendous. This girl begins following Paul, Luke, and Silas around. And kind of like we see happening in the stories of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, the demonic spirit is rightfully identifying these folks as servants of Jesus. They recognize that Jesus is at work through these guys. The demon says that these are servants of the Most High God who proclaim salvation in Jesus. It's not clear why the demon is doing this. Maybe it's mocking Paul. Maybe it's hoping to cause trouble for them, a preemptive strike, or or something like that. But the point is, is that this demon is 
And Paul's mind drawing all kinds of unhelpful attention to Paul and his company. For days, this girl is walking around shouting, causing a disturbance, potentially causing a major disturbance, following Paul around saying, this is what these guys have come to do. And so Paul is absolutely perturbed, annoyed, or disturbed. This thing, this python spirit, is risking spoiling their work by drawing too much attention to Paul and his company. So it says, he rebukes the spirit, not the girl, he rebukes the spirit in the name of Jesus, and immediately it comes out of her. Which is just great. Because it's like, Paul swats this thing away like, like a gnat. He's, he's annoyed with it. He's, a, he's annoyed with the, kind of, the constant, these are the servants of the Most High, and he says, in the name of Jesus, would you, would you be gone and be out of here? It's this like, in passing statement about the supremacy of Jesus even over these spirits. And it means glorious freedom for this slave girl who's possessed and exploited. The demon has been exercised. But in verse 19, that's not the only thing that's exercised. Also exercised was her owner's hope of profit, verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, literally the way it reads is, their hope of gain was cast out. It's the same word Paul uses when he cast out the demon. Their hope for profit is exercised along with the demon. They seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, the local rulers, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. It's amazing that the reaction of these slave owners to this girl being exorcised, this demon being exercised, is their hope of gain was gone. What does that tell us about the, the heart and the spirit of this city? Again, this happy marriage of Satan and the human heart, these co-laborers, the demon is exercised, and there's not any kind of gladness or relief for the girl, but indignance at the people who had the gall to cast the demon out. Their cash cow was no more. This is in part the kind of sabotage I think Lewis is referencing in that quote from earlier. The power of Jesus undoing the schemes of the evil one. He's unraveling the power of Satan over this girl and also unraveling the power of greed over these local entrepreneurs, we'll call them. So our, our entrepreneurs, they drag Paul and Silas to the marketplace. Luke isn't mentioned here. It goes from we to they. It's not clear why. Nevertheless, they're dragged before the local rulers and accused of three things. Of being Jews, appealing to this anti-Semitic undertone in the city, being Jews, disturbing the city, which is ironic because they've come to set slaves free and they're accused of disturbing the city and the third thing is advocating unlawful customs, possibly a reference to the fact that they're saying Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. You have all of these trumped-up charges intended to condemn these guys, true or not. They wanted Paul and Silas punished for ruining their little business venture. And so they're beaten unjustly. They're condemned and accused unjustly and cast into prison. And it's just worth identifying here for a second how familiar all of this sounds. Local authorities raging against the Lord and his anointed, false charges, just condemnation. I mean, who else 
does that sound like? Once again, we see how in the book of Acts, the apostles and the church more generally are portrayed as kind of reliving the story and the life of Jesus. Verse 25, these guys are cast into prison, and about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, and I love this, singing. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all of the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened, And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Paul and Silas are placed in prison, they're bound and fastened, and they're singing and praying, rejoicing in the Lord, even in this moment. And it says that the other prisoners are watching and seeing this, when suddenly there's an earthquake and freedom is is granted to these brothers. This is the third prison escape in Acts, chapter 5, 12, and now 16. The third prison escape. And this time, the jailer sees, and he hears, and he panics, because he knows what kind of judgment awaits jailers whose prisoners escape. He sees that they have been granted escape miraculously, and knows nobody's going to believe this story, and I'm on the hook for these guys breaking out. And so it's better for me to take my life here on my terms than to be subject to what the magistrates are going to do to me. Verse 28, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and torches, and they'll come rushing in. And he trembled with fear as he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house, set food before them, a little midnight snack, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The Lord sovereignly opens the prison. Paul sees the despair in this jailer. We don't know why Paul and company don't leave. The Lord sovereignly designs it, I suppose, so that the jailer can be saved. He's distraught. He recognizes that the most high that these guys were were accused of peddling, well, after this prison break, the most high must be for real. So he says, what must I do to be saved? Obviously, your God is with you. What must I do to be saved? It's amazing to see the Lord's sovereign design in saving this jailer and his whole household. I mean, like Jim mentioned last week, we aren't to underestimate the twists and turns and the different path that the Lord might call us to, what the Lord intends to do with those twists and turns. He he redeems in this story even the unjust imprisonment of Paul and Silas for the sake of this jailer. Then the next portion, watch this, verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and thrown us into prison. Do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Here, Paul appeals to the fact that he's a Roman citizen, and what has been done to them is illegal. It's unjust. 
You can't do this to a Roman citizen. And he demands an apology. He actually demands that the magistrates come and publicly escort them out of prison as a kind of public acknowledgement that they have indeed mistreated Paul and Silas. Verse 38. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. They'd realized their mistake. So they came and apologized to Paul and Silas. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And and I love this. The magistrates, with their tails between their legs, go and apologize to Paul and Silas. And then Paul and company leave the prison, visit once again with the sister Lydia, encourage the brothers, and make off for the next city. So let's ask, what happens when the kingdom of God confronts the kingdoms of this world? What happens when Jesus is king? Here's the first thing. You ready? Captives are set free. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus says of himself, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recover sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Paul the Apostle writes in Colossians 1, verses 13 through 14, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus has destroyed the one with the power of death to deliver us from slavery to the fear of death. In Hebrews 2 verses 14 through 15. Jesus is leading a new exodus and everywhere he and his gospel and his spirit go, he sets the captives free. And we see this in the story of the slave girl who is possessed and exploited by both man and demon, and she is released and set free. We see this in the Philippian jailer. I don't think it's a, 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 an accident that this is a jailer who's, who's kind of portrayed as one who is petrified at the thought of, of death. He is imprisoned by the thought of death. He is enslaved to fear and despair, but he enters into the hope and gladness of Jesus through the gospel. And I love that he even sets a table for those he previously imprisoned. Gosh, even in verse 26, it says that when the prison doors are open, is it Paul and Silas alone who are freed? It says, no, all prisoners are released. This is a comprehensive freedom in Jesus. What I think Luke is doing in giving us this story is giving us a a, a sampling of the reality of the freedom that comes from Jesus and the work that he has done for us. This is what he does, friends, is he sets captives free. Those who are enslaved to sin, enslaved to our own appetites, Those of us who are enslaved to the enemy, the evil one, enslaved to death, Christian, all of this, Jesus has defeated and freed us from. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading um, a a bit of liturgy from the earliest Christians. It was this, uh, it's a part of a a book of the the church fathers, and it just, it's some of their writings and things that are really interesting. And and I was really struck by this communion liturgy from the early church. I'm going to read it for you guys. It's just... Chef's kiss. It reads, 
Fulfilling your will and preparing a holy people, he, being Jesus, opened his hands for suffering so that he might set free from suffering and from corruption and death those who put their hope in you. When he was handed over to voluntary suffering so that he might set upright those who had slipped and find those who were lost and give life to the dead and dissolve death, and unbind the chains of the devil, and complete the Father's will, and tread down Sheol, and open the way of life, and guide the righteous to light, and to fix a boundary, and illuminate the darkness, and increase the children, and show forth the resurrection, he took bread. This is just the preamble to the Lord's Supper for these guys. He continues, He says, at your name, which is written within the faces of the gate of your holy heights, which causes Sheol to be stunned when it hears it. The depth is rent. Spirits are driven away. The serpent is crushed. Unbelief is vanished. Disobedience is subdued. Anger is quieted. Envy is rendered ineffective. Arrogance is reproved. Love of money is rooted out. Vainglory is removed. Pride is humbled. All cause of bitterness is driven away. So grant, Lord, that our inward eyes may perceive you, praise you, glorify you, recall you, serve you, have part with you alone, Son and Word of God. In Jesus, we are set free from all of it. And if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, hear us say this to you. This is what is on the table for you, friend. Freedom. We truly and we literally believe that Jesus sets captives free and that he makes available to you a freedom like you have never tasted, a new kind of forever life in Jesus available to you now. We don't receive it by doing enough stuff, by doing enough good deeds. We receive it by simply opening our hands and believing. Jesus frees us. What happens when Jesus is king? Captives are set free. Here's what else happens when Jesus is king. Evil is undone. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.12 that we wage war not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And he talks about these things from a first-person point of view. Our war is against the darkness. In our devotion to Jesus, in our evangelism, in our joyful faithfulness to him, we participate in Jesus' undoing of the evil in our world. What I love about this passage, and we're going to see this a few other times as Paul's missionary journeys continue, is like, it's like the church and the spirit and the gospel are like this big splinter that gets stuck in the heart of the world. And the world has this immune response where it can't handle it and it just wants it gone. It just, it, it, it's, it's like the, this immune response and it, the red blood cells attack and they can't handle it and they just want it removed. Jesus is light, life, and freedom and relief for some. But for those who reject him, Jesus is condemnation and exposure. I mean, notice in the city, that this story rather, how the nature of the city is laid bare by their inhospital, inhospi- uh, that word, to Paul and the gospel. It says that their hope of gain was gone. So they have the brothers beaten. And what does this tell us about these folks? They have rejected the gospel and chosen darkness for themselves. The good news of the gospel for each of us begins with bad news. It starts by informing you that your heart is a mangled, gnarled mess of sinful desire. 
And the same kind of evil in the heart of Philippi runs right through every human heart. And and I, I really believe that you know that. I believe that once we're done chafing at that and acting all wounded, I think we know it in our heart of hearts. That we are desperately wicked and we know we're manipulative and we know that we are complicit in the great mess of the world. Our first response is to downplay it and minimize it. We we call our sin everything but evil, but we know that we are in need of redemption. And the Bible says that because God is good, we stand condemned before him in our sin. And that Jesus' work in our lives begins here with exposure and with undoing. And we can panic and freak and flail against it like the city officials here, or we can be humbled by it and receive the pardon that he extends to us. This is what happens when we encounter King Jesus. We are undone so that we can be remade. This is what we talk about when we talk about being saved. What the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? It's what what do I do with my guilt before a holy God? This is the meaning of Jesus' death and his resurrection, that he dies for our sin. Though he knew no sin, he is judged for the sin that you and I commit so that we could be restored to God and be remade in his image. We confess our guilt and all of its ugliness and we ask Jesus for forgiveness and believe on him and we are saved. It's the good news of the gospel. It's what happens when Jesus is king. Captives are set free. Evil is undone. And third, earthly rulers are put in their place. What I really love about the way this story ends is how Paul, if I could say it this way, sticks it to the man. He recognizes that they are unjust, and he shows, I think, how we're to respond to unjust rulers. This was actually really helpful and clarifying for me. In verse 37, Paul demands an apology for their unjust treatment of Paul and Silas on the basis of the fact that they're Roman citizens. He says, Roman citizens, you can't uh, condemn or flog those who are Roman citizens until they've been found guilty. And so Paul contests the flogging. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, summarizes the, the issue here. He asks, why do Paul and Silas not simply suffer in silence? After all, Jesus suffers in silence. We're commanded to follow Jesus' example in the New Testament, so why doesn't Paul suffer in silence here? Carson writes, it's difficult to prove, but many have argued believably that Paul stands on his rights when by doing so he thinks he can establish legal precedents that may help other Christians. Every case in the books where Christians have been shown not to be guilty of public disorder or a threat to the Roman Empire can only be a useful legal precedent. If this is right, it is a mark of strategic thinking for the sake of others. What Carson's saying is that sometimes authorities wield their authorities unjustly, like what happens here. And Paul actually models that on occasion we should push back against the unjust use of authority. We should speak against authorities in a way that would serve Christians that come after us. Carson in this quote is saying that had Paul laid down and not said anything about his treatment, there's the possibility that this small, early, kind of developing community of Philippian Christians could face similar mistreatment moving forward. But if Paul stands up and calls this out for what is unjust treatment, he's actually setting up this group of Philippian Christians for success in the future. This is an improper use of authority. And if Paul doesn't speak to it, The possibility of these brothers and sisters, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, of receiving the same treatment is very likely. And so Paul stands up and says, this is unjust, this is not right. So that means, like Paul, 
It is good for us to push back against unjust use of authority, unjust legislation, unjust treatment of Christians, and we should appeal to our rights as citizens of the United States, like Paul does here. I think there's a kind of well-meaning but ultimately naive way of thinking about our heavenly citizenship that that says we should lay down our rights and we should never wade into politics because our kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. We must be willing to suffer for Jesus' namesake. But actually, Christian history and the Apostle Paul in this story shows us how we're to handle these situations. I think of the instance of the, the masterpiece cake shop story, if you're familiar. F- familiar. A Christian man refused to make a cake for an unbiblical marriage. And there was, this was a, a kind of a dicey ethical issue. The question of cake baking and the question of the appropriate response to such situations is challenging. But I think what this text makes clear for us is that it is appropriate for us to stand on rights for the sake of preventing unjust treatment of Christians. Do you follow? Yes, Jesus uses suffering. Yes, Jesus tells us and, and lives for us that suffering is to be expected. But it's not something that we want or ask for. In fact, it's something we should actively resist and push against and vote against. Do you understand? It's not unloving or cantankerous. It's the exact opposite. It is loving to try and preserve the well-being of these other Christians using these means. And again, Paul is saying to these rulers, like we've seen time and time again, that you are not the one who is ultimately king. It is Jesus. So what happens when Jesus is king? Captives are set free. Evil is undone. Earthly rulers are put in their place. And then the fourth thing is this. This is my favorite one. His people sing. Verse 25, I mean, I feel like this is the heart of the passage. That these brothers are unjustly treated and unjustly imprisoned. And at midnight, as they're in jail, it says that they pray and sing. Even at the heart of midnight, in suffering and uncertainty, Jesus' people Sing. I've heard it said that not every Christian can sing, but every Christian has a song. Because Jesus is king, there is nothing that can shake our hope and our confidence of the future. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of the Lord Jesus. And so we can sing, period. No matter the circumstances, no matter the hardship, no matter the uncertainty, you and I can sing. We have a song, Christian. Many of you are familiar with Tim Keller, the pastor in New York City who passed away recently. Someone who was super informative uh, and, and helpful for me, kind of developing my own theology. He wrote a book several years ago called Making Sense of God. And ultimately, the book kind of boils down to this question. He asks, do you have a meaning that suffering can't take away? Are you living for something that suffering can't remove from your life? You say, I'm I'm living to make money or I'm I'm, I'm living for my job. Suffering can remove that. You say, I'm living for my family. I'm living for my loved ones. Suffering can remove that. Do you have a meaning that suffering can't take away? And for Jesus' people, those who see Jesus as king, the answer is yes. We have a bulletproof hope that died and came back to life. And that in Christ, we have a forever kind of hope. And so again, no matter what we experience, no matter what suffering or uncertainty we may find ourselves in the thick of, Jesus' people sing.
Now, this time in our service, we always take some time to pray. And here's how I want us to respond. Christian, first, we're going to respond with a toast to King Jesus. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, we, as the countercultural movement, remember our King, and we are nourished for our pilgrimage as the saints. In just a moment, I'm going to read the first portion of our liturgy out loud, and we invite all baptized believers forward to take the supper. We always invite folks to come down on the outside and grab the elements and return to our seats. Then in a few moments, I'll read the second portion of our liturgy, and then we'll take the elements at our seat together, and then we'll stand and we'll sing, like Paul and Silas, and like innumerable saints that have preceded us. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, here's how I'd like for you to respond. Could you believe the gospel? Would you be willing to own the reality that your heart is a gnarled, mangled mess? That you stand condemned before Jesus, but he offers pardon. Could you receive that pardon that he offers you by his grace? I'd invite you, as we're taking the supper, I would invite you to pray and ask Jesus by his Holy Spirit to move in your heart, to, to, show, to show you the reality of who he is, to open your heart to behold the gospel. It's our prayer that Ridgewood Church would be one of these kingdom outposts who lives in a joyful, resistant faithfulness, faithful to the Lord Jesus, resistant to the schemes of the evil one, completely and utterly freed to sing in every circumstance. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us a sense of what you have come to do and what you have come to free us from. And would you make us a people who live abundantly and vibrantly and hopefully in you. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Knowing that even in the darkness of midnight that we have a bulletproof hope in you, Lord Jesus. I pray this morning for folks in our body who who I look at and I know are holding back and fighting tears right now, who are walking through darkness. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would minister to them. Would you give them strength? Would you give them the ability to sing even now? Lord Jesus, I look out and I recognize that we have friends who are here with us this morning who don't yet know you and who would would confess that they, they don't know you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, unashamedly for them, that you would save them, that you would use these scriptures and conversations with the people that brought them, that you would use that to draw them to yourself. And Lord Jesus, as we take the supper, I pray that we would be strengthened for the task of faithfulness that is set before us.